This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Looking forward to our next guest, who, as our website points out, has served as senior consultant to the U.S. government, and that includes Departments of Health and Human Services, Homeland Security, Veterans Affairs, the Administration for Children and Families, and most recently, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Dr. Tenor Vinma is professor of nursing at Johns Hopkins University of Bloomberg School of Public Health, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder, of course, of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. And Dr. Vinema joins us on the phone from Sarasota, Florida. Dr. Vinema, nice to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. Um, Tell us a little bit about your world right now. I mean, I really feel like it's an interesting time where we're seeing more of the world reopening. We're seeing more virus cases. Um, Tell us how you see it at this point. Well, thank you so much. It's an uh, honor and a privilege to join you this afternoon and to have the opportunity to comment on the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and just the incredible burden and challenges that the pandemic has created for healthcare systems and for the people who work within them. And of course, our report really focused on the challenges that the nursing workforce faced and continue to face in light of what we're sort of considering a smoldering uh, pandemic that we're actually seeing increases in certain states. So we have really learned some early lessons from all of this, and certainly from uh, the the, um, devastating impact that the pandemic had in the greater New York and New Jersey metro areas. The surge in demand for healthcare for those uh, increased numbers of COVID-positive patients just required that nurses uh, be able to work, um, have had very limited access to the appropriate levels of personal protective equipment that they needed. Many nurses have actually not received the training that one needs to understand how to safely don and doff that personal protective equipment. And then, of course, because of the large number of patients surging, as we refer to it, uh, within the healthcare system, uh, we were forced to redesign workflow and change staffing patterns and reassign nurses to COVID-positive patient units where some of those nurses had never worked with critically care patients before. So we saw a multitude of challenges. We saw amazing resilience within the nursing workforce in terms of being able to respond to those challenges. But that led my colleagues and I to co-author the report that really tried to look at what the issues were. So how do we fix it? Because that seems like, you know, medical care 101, right? To make sure that people, first of all, of course, have the equipment. And we saw the problems with that, you know, revealed um, as the cases spiked uh, in the country and certainly in places like New York City. But how do you make sure that nurses and everyone, uh, certainly within the healthcare community, has the necessary equipment? And I think training, like that just seems to me like you got to make sure everybody knows how to use it. Absolutely. You, you've raised some excellent questions. 
And I, I think my answer is that there's a myriad of factors that really come into play here. Uh, it certainly starts fundamentally in, in colleges and universities and schools of nursing in terms of ensuring that pandemic preparedness and public health emergency preparedness and response content is included in nursing curricula, which very often it, it is not. Hmm. And then so not only do we really need to make sure that uh, our, our student nurses and our graduate student nurses get this education and training, but they are competent. They, we are testing their competencies in terms of their skills and abilities to participate in pandemic response. Right. We're looking down the road at the implementation of a national vaccine campaign where we have, you know, over 350 million Americans that will require uh, a vaccine, hopefully once it's developed and manufactured and we're ready to distribute it. And certainly that will be a very nursing intensive public health event. So looking at uh, education and preparedness is the right thing. The other thing is the support of nurses in hospitals and in healthcare settings in right. terms of, you know, that ongoing support from hospital administration well, and participating what, in disaster drills. Forgive me, and I want to interrupt only because we only have about yeah. uh, a couple minutes left here. But sure. I do wonder, because you have worked with so many different departments within the government, whether it's FEMA, whether it's Health and Human Services, Homeland Security, the VA, um, in terms of the government, the federal government response what needs to be done differently next time around? And I will say about the testing and tracing, we keep hearing that we almost need a military-like effort um, to make sure that we can kind of get out of this and that we're kind of we're missing an opportunity. So I'm just curious how you see that. Absolutely. Well, obviously, the Department of Health and Human Services, and in particular, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and then ASPR, the Assistant Secretary, uh, Office of Preparedness and Response, those are the federal agencies that in our report, we strongly encourage them to take time to look at detailed pandemic and other disaster and public health emergency response plans and look at the assumptions where having a, a, a prepared, competent nursing workforce is going to be critical for them to execute those plans. And so I do believe that the yeah. federal government needs to take some steps to ensure that we're better prepared next time. Well, we certainly certainly hope that we've all learned, you know, a very obviously harsh lesson, unfortunately, but we do hope we've learned a lesson so that we can uh, do um, and, and meet this kind of a stress or uh, you know, tragedy in the future in a, in a much better way. Dr. Tenor Vinema, she is professor of nursing at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health, as we mentioned, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Radio, on the phone from Sarasota, Florida. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Great cover story this week. Great. You and I have been talking about it a lot. Um, in the last day or so. It is the remarks in the magazine. It's very timely. It's a necessary conversation in light of the protests that have erupted over racism in America. And Jason, as we know, it delves into the gaps between blacks and whites that exist on many levels. And it asks a really important question, whether it is time maybe for quotas. Yeah, and it is a powerful story, a provocative story. We expect no less from Rebecca Greenfield. She runs all of our Diversity and sustainability coverage here at Bloomberg, focusing on the managing diversity team, which is 
just doing some terrific work. Yeah. Uh, she's with us on the phone, as is Joel Weber, both in Brooklyn. Joel, set this up for us. Why the cover? Uh, I think it's probably the most important story in corporate America right now. Um, mm-hmm. And it was one of these ones that Rebecca filed a draft and we thought it was really good. And we started talking to the art department about how do we art this story? And mm-hmm. the art department came back with basically the most arresting art asset that, that, um, that I, I saw all week, I think, which was 500 um, headshots of Fortune 500 companies. And it reveals that there are four black CEOs in the country right now and in uh, in leading uh fortune 500 companies and that just alone is just shocking when you see it um laid out like we did on the cover and um rebecca's story is ultimately about quotas which you know are practically illegal and yet when you see this gigantic problem and it, uh, you know we put that problem on the cover of the magazine um it makes you wonder if there shouldn't be a more radical approach approach for a solution. Um, so, so Becca, can you kind of walk us through um, what quotas might solve and the problems that are associated with them? Yeah, so I think you mentioned the main problem, which is how few black leaders there are. And this is not because they have, there hasn't been a lot of effort to change the makeup of companies. There have been billions of dollars spent and decades of trying and Lots of companies saying it's in their best interest to do this, and most companies, as one person I quoted said so, but it's so well said, they look like plantations. The organizational chart looks like plantations, and black folks are at the bottom. That was a quote that someone gave me, and that's the reality, and, it's, and it hasn't changed. So what's, what, when cut left their own devices, companies aren't really able to move the needle, and it's, it's a, because it's a very complicated and difficult problem to solve. So like Joel mentioned, I was wondering if we need something more aggressive or more coercive. And quotas are very controversial, but they have been proven to work in a capacity, which is to get more representation. They don't fix everything. They don't fix racism, but they do move the needle more than what companies are doing. And we know, Rebecca, it has helped move the needle with women, correct? Yeah, so there is this law that was passed in California um, a couple of years ago that where they required boards there to have um, at least one female director um, by last year, and then they're upping that um, depending on the size of the board. So there were, there's a quota. They've been sued because, like Joel mentioned, quotas mm-hmm. have some are in a legal gray area. But it has pushed all of these boards of public companies in California to add women. Um, and they were worried that they wouldn't be able to find qualified candidates. But at the end of the day, they they did to comply because if they didn't comply, they had to pay a $100,000 fine. Not every board I, I think complied, the, but there was a huge I, I think the California one is a really interesting um, uh, example of how it might actually show that there's a way to make this work. But obviously, there's going to be these legal challenges. And what what have been the basis of the legal challenges so far in California? Yeah, so... Quotas, I think, since the Supreme Court has been weighing in on affirmative action, this all comes back to the idea of affirmative action. Um, and when the Supreme Court weighed in, has weighed in, they, the court has tended to not like quotas. I think the court thinks they go too far. 
but has said that organizations can use affirmative action to further their interests. That's where we get this big push for diversity. Um, so the legal challenges in California are based in that spirit, that quotas are a form of discrimination, um, and that it's unconstitutional. But neither of those challenges have been successful so far. And in the meantime, the boards are adding more women. And I don't think if the law is, you know, knocked down, that they're going to just fire these women from these boards. Um, I think they're going to stick with it. Okay, I also want to ask, because California isn't um, the only place in the world that has experimented with this, you also kind of scratched some international um, uh, themes. What, what, what about outside of the U.S.? How are other countries um, looking at this? Challenge? Yeah, so, you, you know, laws are different in different places. So in Norway, they also have a public company um, law, and it says like 40% of boards teach for women, which is high. And there, women hold a little bit over 40% of those positions. But I think it shows the drawback of quotas or how quotas are limited. Really, they do what they're supposed to do. They get companies to, or boards or whoever, to add more of whatever demographic you want. Even with all those women in power, it hasn't changed the overall makeup of the executive power of the companies where there aren't quotas. So I think that kind of shows their quotas are very powerful, what they do, and you need them. But also, you can't just use them in one place and expect you know, the rest of corporate America to fall in line or, or Norway or wherever. Well, and it's interesting, you know, Becky, you, you also bring up the idea that even talking about them may spur action. I mean, is that a, a reasonable argument? I mean, what, what do you think about that? Well, I would say that so far, a lot of the feedback, <laughs> I think talking about them gets a lot of people upset um, yeah. because they don't like them. I can tell you that from my Twitter mentions, which is going to turn for the worse today. Um, but I think my the, my kind of motivation for making this argument and writing this and thinking about this for a long time is that we do need something more radical if there's going to be real change because there is a lot of, you know, mealy mouth or whatever. I mean, very well-meaning action yeah. in the area and it doesn't doesn't do anything right um i think it's also a rethinking of what affirmative action or quotas are for and i think some people i talked to said we need to rethink it as this way of counteracting right. racism well not as like this representation challenge right and as you said, a lot of well-meaning and there's a lot of committees and conversations, but we've been talking for a long time. And so maybe we need to rethink the process and maybe we need something that's a little bit more aggressive. I got to just say, the cover, man, what's wrong with this picture? It just hits you really, you know, quickly. Yeah, the picture and the words together are really uh, so just remarkable. Thank you so much. Rebecca Greenfield leading all of our diversity coverage, managing diversity team here at Bloomberg. She joined us, as did Joel Weber, mm-hmm. the editor of the magazine. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's talk a little Business Week economics now because it's Thursday and now we have gotten, uh, unfortunately, all too used to or all too accustomed to, maybe I should say, uh, seeing jaw-dropping numbers every single Thursday when it comes to jobless claims. Today was no exception. Let's understand that. In the broader context of the economy, what the Fed has been saying, and much more with Milton Ezradi. He is the chief economist for Vested, joining us on the phone from Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. Milton, really nice to have you here with Carolyn and myself. Pleasure to be on. 
So let's start with the news of the day, which is those jobless claims. Uh, surprising to many that it remains at that high level. What did you read into it, especially as you got into the details? Well, mostly what I got out of the, the numbers were that some of the optimism that was implicit in the jobs report earlier this month, in the retail sales overstated the rebound in the economy. There are still a lot of people losing their job. One and a half million applied for unemployment insurance. That says to me that uh, Jay Powell, when he testified and said this is going to be a little longer, a little harder than you think, was correct. Well, you know, Milton, one of the things I was excited about having you on is that you have been in the world of finance and economics for, I don't know, 40 years. You've seen a lot of cycles um, and a lot of different crises. So this is safe to say, unlike any other, right? Because there's a logical part of us that understands with the economy shutting down, the impact it's going to have on activity, on the labor market, and so on. Um, I'm just curious how you see it, though, coming up on the other side. I think there was hopeful expectations. It was V, and we'd bounce back real quickly, but it's not that easy, and especially we have so many guests that come on and say, listen, we're still in a health crisis, and we still have a lot of problems. Well, there's the uncertainty about what's going to happen with the virus, and I'm not equipped to do that, uh, to talk about how the virus will go. But I think the issue here, and it's one thing that Powell tried to explain in his testimony before Congress and his press conference after the uh, FOMC meetings, is that there was a lot of damage done. It, it was fine to say we're going to shut down and everyone gets pent up demand, everyone wants to get out, but a lot of businesses closed, a lot of people were laid off. Yes, these people will be called back, those people who had the capital or the loans to bridge the gap, but there has been a real rise in bankruptcies. Those firms are never coming back, and I think that that is going to make this a lot longer. So we may see a bounce here. Uh, the V that everyone's talking about, but then we're going to deal with the legacy of these bankruptcies, the legacy of uh, downsizing that did occur, more permanent downsizing, which is bridging uh, the uh, the lockdowns, and it'll the economy will slow after a, uh, a happy-looking V. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, and I was telling Carol a little bit about a conversation I had uh, just while I was late to the show. I was catching up with Henry Kravis over at KKR, and he was talking about the CEOs that he's talking to, to a person, are basically saying, my workforce is going to be smaller on the other side of this. And even if it's not every CEO, if it's a lot of CEOs who are saying that, that has a profound effect on the labor force going forward and ultimately the broader economy. It does. And we had wonderful employment numbers before the shutdowns and the lockdowns. I'm not saying we should have avoided them. That's a separate issue. But we're not getting back to that for a long time. And I stress the bankruptcies because the people who suffered most, Jay Powell made a point of this too, the people who suffered most in in this these lockdowns were the undercapitalized small businesses, particularly in the less advantaged uh, sectors of this economy. And they're gone. They're, they've gone bankrupt. They're, they're never coming back. So what does it look like then on the other side? Um, we've had you know, various economists and even our Bloomberg economics team, Milton, come on and talk to us and say, you know, it's going to be several years before we get back to where we were pre-COVID-19. 
Well, I think it'll be a long time, and I think several years is probably a good estimate. Mm. What I think is going to be deceptive here is that we're going to have this bounce. There's a lot of people who spent less money who had incomes because they could work from home or they were essential workers and did not have an opportunity to spend money. So you'll have this bounce in the economy. They want to get out. They want to have a restaurant meal. They want to see people in the bar. They want to buy clothes other than the pajamas they wore for a month and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Just for the record, Jason and I have been dressed every day doing our show in real clothes, not in our pajamas. I, will I think do... it's partially because we have to look at each other on video conference because who's to say what would happen if there were no evidence? However, our morning saying. planning call, yeah. mm, all bets off. Yeah, exactly. In some of the Zoom calls I've done, I've decided I'm the last clean-shaven man in America. Uh, I think that's right. I think you're. I think you're right about that. No, but it's but it's it's going to be different, and it's going to be really tough, and it's going to be lasting for for many individuals and many small businesses, as you said. It, it is. And I think the minority groups in this country, not because of racism, just because of the undercapitalization in those sectors of the economy are going to take the longest time coming back. We had best figures for Hispanic workers, best figures for uh, black workers before the shutdowns. It'll be a long haul for them. It'll be a long haul for everybody. We will have this bounce because people do want to get out, but that will fade um, by the fourth quarter. Right, because when we have a really tight labor market, that's when the fringes of the labor force, right, really start to benefit. And they did. We had yeah. a very tight labor market, and they, they were benefiting. But now it's going to be a long road back, especially for them. Well, and as as you're alluding to, Milton, I think, you know, there are some structural issues. We talked about them with the CEO of Lindustry yesterday that relate to a lot of minority-owned businesses where if they – they may not even be able to survive to, to the other side, and, and there are a lot of implications for that as well. Uh, Milton Ezradi, thank you so much. Really nice to catch Pleasure. up with you. Chief Economist for Vested. Joining us on the phone from Pennsylvania, Carol. Do you think Ari and Paula have like feety pajamas? I don't think so. Ari's in the office. Oh, that's right. So he's been dressed when he's doing yeah. our morning call. Paul? Paul, yeah. Paul, yeah. yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Could, could be a bunny twist. slippers, maybe. Little, little bunny slippers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ari. We yeah, appreciate Ari that you are. Ari just confirmed that he is, in, he is dressed in our control room. So that's good to know. <laughs> no, I think there's an NC. No comment from Paul Oh, Brandon. Paul Brandon's in shorts. Oh, he is. Yeah, that, that checks out. That checks out. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I like the understated headlines uh, sometimes that Bloomberg Intelligence have. Carnival's second quarter results show recovery risks amid cost cuts. That is true. Uh, <laughs> this is a story that we've been following very closely. Business Week has been following it very closely. Brian Egger, Senior Gaming and Lodging Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone from New Jersey. Brian, you know I'm just teasing. I love your research. Of course. <laughs> of course. So tell weren't, us you like, the- weren't you like, wait, what? Oh, my God. What's going on? I mean, this is, an, <laughs> this is a remarkable story it is. Uh, in many cases. But by the numbers, help us understand what's going on at Carnival. Sure. So Carnival basically, as did other uh, cruise operators, suspended sailing operations on their fleet back in mid Mid uh, March, so they've been basically in a no revenue scenario for quite some time. They expect to begin to resume some cruises beginning in August, after the CDC warning against taking a cruise uh, expires. But nevertheless, it's going to obviously be a very steep uphill climb as they resume operations with a lot of distancing in place. 
they have enough money in place? I know they've topped the markets, but do they have enough money in place to kind of ride out the storm? So they've got about $7.5 billion in liquidity, and by mm-hmm. our estimate, that allows them to basically continue, you know, uh, maintain their cash burn rate for at least eight to ten months or so. So we do reach a point beyond the end of this year where it becomes very worrisome if they don't resume operations at some level. And they do plan to. The question is, uh, how quickly can they reintroduce ships and what will the uptake be from customers? Brian, I mean, what's your overall read, you and the team, the the overall read on this industry? Because I I feel like for some of us, at least looking at it more as consumers as anything, you think, okay, no way. I'm not getting back on a ship. There are other people who are very excited about uh, getting back on a ship. We Charlie know that Pellet, I bet. by we'll the numbers. Charlie Pellet is one of them, our colleague, voice of the New York City subway. Uh, how do you uh, – help us understand kind of what the actual uh, demand is and what the way forward is. Sure. So one way to look at this is that for 2021, about one-third of the bookings or you know, on the book for 2021 sailings actually come from individuals that were on canceled cruises this year and are basically are going to redeem them next year as future cruise credits. So, you know, we do have ships beginning to book last next for next year, obviously at a, at a much slower pace and with pricing down. But part of the inventory of cruise ships next year is going to be booked, about a third of it so far, by people that actually had their cruise canceled or were forced to cancel this year and decided, rather than taking a cash refund, to try to book again next year, uh, hoping things will be better, obviously. But that's interesting. You know, if they were given the option of cashing out, I think I would have just taken the, the cash and run. But, I mean, it's interesting that they're like, no, 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 I want to do it. And, you know, I've done some deep dives into Carnival and have spent some time, you know, doing stories and, and on the ship. And the people that are on there, like I remember talking to folks in the elevators, these are people who go on, you know, five, six, seven, eight Carnival cruises. I mean, this is what they do over and over again. So they're really a committed, and I know Carnival has many brands and they hit different kind of economic sectors, but um, these are people who really love to cruise and cruise Carnival. Yeah, it's interesting. About half of the individuals that had their cruises canceled for this year chose to get a full cash refund, and the other half chose to use uh, this the voucher basically for a future. Uh, credit towards a free cruise for a future period. So it is about split between people that just basically want the cash back or people that say, you know, I'll basically uh, take a 120% refund or something like that yeah. off of what I initially booked and redeem it next year. Yeah, I mean, it, it's such a fascinating uh, set of dynamics. I mean, this is coming at a time, and you know this better than we do, Brian, that, you know, the entire travel and lodging industry is uh, – under sort of existential threat. You know, we talked with the CEO of Hilton and subsequent to us talking to him, you know, they cut 20% of their corporate workforce. You know, we talk to CEOs all the time who basically say, yeah, I'm talking to my colleagues and, you know, from a business travel perspective, it's going to be way down. I mean, this is a reckoning that's going to last for a long time, it feels like. I think so, and it's fair to say that the company has realized this. I mean, Carnival, like other companies, has suspended its share buybacks and dividends, it plans to sell six of its 104 ships to get rid of some of that capacity, and they do expect, working mm. to their favor, that some of the expected ship deliveries they'll be getting this year will be delayed till next year. So in some ways, that kind of helps not have too much supply at a time when they really don't need it, obviously. Yeah, it's really amazing. I do wonder, though, the hit that they're taking this year, 
does it, how many years does it take for them to kind of get back to where they were pre-virus? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think the cruising experience when people do go back is, is true for also the casinos, which I follow. It's going to be it's going to be characterized by uh, social distancing, by by much lower capacity utilization and bookings levels, yeah. and it's going to take quite some time. I mean, pricing will be lower, uh, occupancies will be lower by design, and uh, I think it will probably take a, a good period of time to get back to anything resembling what we saw before the pandemic. I just feel like big cruise ships, that's the antithesis of oh. social distancing. Seriously, especially uh. as we come to learn more and more about this yeah. virus. Brian Egger, thank you so much. Senior gaming and lodging analyst. He's got a lot on his plate uh, these days trying to figure out what happens yeah. next with some of these big lodging and gaming names, including Carnival, uh, which delivered quite a loss. Uh, he is with Bloomberg Tele- Intelligence, of course, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us, someone we've talked to a bunch. I'm glad we've got him back. Ross Gerber, he's president and chief executive officer of Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management. He joins us uh, once again on the phone from Santa Monica, California. Got about a billion dollars in assets under management. Ross, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing okay. You know, it's week 14. All, all things from considering. Home. Yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. And just trying to make sense of the last, you know, 14 weeks and really the last three weeks. We've had a lot of discussions about diversity and racism, you know, through institutions, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's the financial sector and other industries. I know you've been thinking about that, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, just, just to start, we're real proud of the fact we just won another award for diversity and inclusion for my firm from wealthmanagement.com. We also won it from Investment News. So we're considered one of the most diverse firms in the entire industry. And I still think as a firm, we have a lot more diversity to go, you know, uh, and we don't specifically, obviously, hire for diversity. We just try to reflect the community we're in here in, in Southern California, which is very, very diverse. So, you know, that's the way we look at the world is we try to hire the best qualified people, but we want to represent the communities that we're seeing too. And those, those are diverse communities. But you think about it, right? It's a, it's an effort. In other well, words, I think about well, it a lot because we are constantly hiring and I've been dealing yeah. with this my entire career. So I've been hiring and training advisors for 26 years now. And we've constantly struggled with this issue of getting certain groups of people and, and including African-Americans through our system. And I, I really think that there are three main things our industry needs to change. And it starts with FINRA, the regulatory body, and the rules to getting licensed as a financial advisor. So work, you know, what we want to do is call on FINRA to take a good look at the way licensing works. For example, the first thing is standardized testing. Standardized testing is used throughout our system in college and also in the securities industry, and it's been proven to be, A, have no correlation to actual performance of people, and B, it clearly favors certain groups of people uh, over others. We need to change the way that we're testing people into a much more 
you know, reasonable format that's fairer, that is more inclusive. And, and that's kind of how they do continuing education with like videos and other things that are not just filling in the little dots and getting the questions right. So testing is one area. The second area is credit. And the third is criminal. So these are the three things that constantly have a lot of people who would otherwise be qualified financial advisors not get through the registration and licensing system because the testing, the credit checks, and the criminal checks are inherently biased against certain groups of people, including African Americans. And, and so we really love to see that change. And so how does it uh, play through, Ross, to what you do or don't invest in? Well, as far as making investment choices, you know, we run sort of our own version of ESG through companies that we own because we really consider that we own these companies, like we're the owner. And so I don't want to be associated, for example, with Taco Bell today, you know, my God. You know, granted, we're like Starbucks shareholders, and we had that issue yeah. a few months back, and they and they handled it, I thought, pretty well. It's very hard to maintain 17,000 stores and have everything go right this all the This was time. the Philadelphia incident where they exactly. had the, the guys arrested, yeah. But they're very, very, you know, progressive at Starbucks, and I thought they dealt with it fine. But, you know, if I'm dealing with a company, and a perfect example is we sold all of our Facebook position because of morals, not because of the performance of the company, but we feel that they support negative causes and, and create a lot of problems in the world, and we just didn't want to be a part of it as owners. So so it is something we think about as far as the way companies are inclusive or not. Um, we run that through our screen, but our basic investment process is still focused around, obviously, finding the best investments and investing right. them. I mean, it's interesting. We, we had a conversation with John Rogers over at Ariel last week, and, and he was talking about the role of institutional money in all this and that you know Absolutely. ultimately companies and private equity investors hedge fund investors they are really only going to change their behavior in a meaningful way if they feel pressure from their own investors whether that's pensions yeah, endowments etc yeah yeah, totally. And and this is another crime of the index fund generation. You know, Vanguard doesn't have morals. They don't care if you discriminate or not. Now, they're going to be upset that I said that. Then why don't you vote for something, Vanguard? Why don't you vote against management that, that has non-inclusive policies or discriminatory policies? Vanguard won't vote against a board to save their life. Now, I'm proud to say we do a lot of investing with BlackRock, and Larry Fink has said, we're not going to just sit on the sidelines anymore yeah. when we own 5% of every company in America, and they're not inclusive. So I, a shout-out to BlackRock. Um, you know, We specifically don't use Vanguard on purpose because of this stance that they've taken. Yeah. But have they dismantled a lot of their index funds? BlackRock? Not dismantled, but I think what the, it is is using their positions to pressure companies to make, to make better changes. decisions. It, it, you know, if I own 5% of your company, you've got to listen to me, you know? Yeah. And so if Is it working, think, though? Do you feel like it's you know? working, though, Ross? I think it's just starting. Okay. I, look, let's be real. Yeah. Corporate America and the way things are has been this way for a long, long time, okay? In, in my industry, too. Okay, so trying to change these companies is super hard. That's why new companies like mine are formed and grow and succeed is because we are part of the future versus the past. They're still living in mad, you know, what a madman or whatever that show is with with sexism. I mean, this year has been phenomenal for our country in the sense of pushing forward things that matter. First, we had Me Too completely changed Hollywood. Okay, completely for the better. 
and we have the best content we've ever seen coming out of Hollywood, clearly, and we have more equality for for women in Hollywood. Now we've got to do it with African Americans in this country, okay? And maybe this time, maybe this time, because I lived through Rodney King, and nothing happened, nothing changed. Same crap, right? We lived through this. So maybe this time, because these kids have had enough, the kids, you know, have had enough, that they'll get off their Facebook and Instagram and get into the streets, and I couldn't be more proud of them. Couldn't be more proud of the young people today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great to catch up with you. Always uh, love your passion and your perspective. Ross Gerber, President and CEO of Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management, Native Angelino. Uh, and yes. I think that's a really good perspective. Uh, talking Was about Rodney there. King yeah, and understanding those- that mm-hmm. maybe from a different perspective than we see in New York and, and other parts of the country, uh, important. Important to think and about he, all that. And he is right if you think about all the different things that have happened, whether it's Me Too, whether it's yeah. you know the, the, the riots that we have recently seen. And These we Talk, Big changes. You and I talk negatively at times about social media. Social media is a huge accelerant around this. The I citizen mean, journalist, yes, he too. said, the you know, journalist. putting it down and getting into the street. But the fact that mm-hmm. everybody saw that video makes a huge difference. The citizen makes a huge journalist. Difference. It's a yeah. big deal. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.